0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on Paul's second letter to Corinthians called Power in Weakness. We are going to turn to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We are steadily working through this epistle in a series I've called Power in Weakness. And let's turn to that. Um, I'm not sure if we have it on the screen today, but 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18 to the end of the chapter. And let's roll up our sleeves and get into the Word of God together. Listen to what our Heavenly Father has to say to us through Paul, who writes, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's easy for me most of the time to pretend that I actually know what I'm talking about up here, but A passage like this is so deep and profound. It's so thick with the mystery of God that I really feel that I can only stammer and stumble today, and I wish I could explain things crisply and clearly so that even a five-year-old could understand, but that would give the wrong impression of this passage because I think even Paul is groping as he ascends to the full glory of the gospel. And perhaps I can illustrate what I'm getting at when I'll tell you what it's like to visit my friend Andrew, to go to his apartment on Pallishville, and you press his number uh, on the door pad, and he answers the phone, and he buzzes you in, and there's a metallic clunk as the lock releases, and you swing open that heavy metal door, and go into the very large and very dark entranceway of his building. And then you go up the steps into the elevator, the very small and dangerous elevator, and you ascend nine stories, you open the door, and go up a further flight of stairs where he's waiting at the top. And I want to use that image as a picture of salvation, because I think a lot of us as Christians are dwelling at... The ground floor, which is no place at all to live. I think often, as evangelical Protestants especially, we are so focused on justification, on being made right with God and having our sins forgiven, that we wrongly imagine that this is the entire story of the gospel. Not even close. There is far more to the gospel, even than that great. As it is, and essential as it is, I'm not knocking justification here today, Paul glories in the fact that Christ has made a way for us to come to God. But justification is only the sound of the great metal door unlocking. And we're not meant to spend spend our whole lives living in a large, unlit lobby. And some of us perhaps have wandered up to the first or second floor, but God is calling us to a spiritual ascent to enjoy everything that Christ has won for us in the gospel and that the Holy Spirit, who has been poured out on his people, who is present among us today, is inviting us into The heart of the gospel is not justification, that is just the doorway into the heart, the climax, the apex of the gospel, which is participation in the very life of God. Full communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, when we are transformed to become as much like God as it is possible for human beings to be. That may have raised a few eyebrows, and you'll understand as we go on why I'm groping as I try to explore what it means to behold, to participate in, to become the glory of God. Glory is... Deceptively simple words, only five letters in English, and we could define it perhaps as the overwhelming brilliance and splendor of God's essence. But glory is a reality that cannot be defined with mere words. I know we love clear propositions that we can get our minds around completely, And feel that we've not only apprehended but comprehended what Scripture is saying. And the glory of God is something that blows through all our mental capacities. It is simply beyond words as we press into this mystical reality of the glory of God. It's best experienced not propositionally through words but poetically through pictures, as Scripture so often does. And if you were to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel, a very bizarre prophet of God, I must say, who had some extremely strange visions, if you've ever dug into that book. And in the opening chapter of Ezekiel, he has this Appearance of the glory of God in the land of Babylon by the Kibar River. He sees a windstorm and an immense cloud with flashing lightning. He sees strange winged creatures. He, see, he sees wheels spinning. And then in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out one toward the other, and each had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings." Above the vault over their heads was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. A bizarre and overwhelming vision. You notice that Ezekiel doesn't even describe this as the glory of the Lord. It's several steps removed. It's the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and he sees a human being glowing like fire. what humans, human beings were meant to be as we're united with God. And our original purpose as human beings going all the way back to ancient history in the book of Genesis was for us to, to behold, to participate in, and to reflect the glory of God. Adam and Eve, Genesis tells us, were created in the image and in the likeness of God. They were icons, icons fashioned by God to mediate the divine presence to his creation. And when the other creatures in the garden encountered Adam and Eve, they were experiencing the presence of God through his, his image bearers. It was something awesome they encountered when they met the first couple. And they bowed down in worshipful submission to God's regents. And Adam and Eve had a high privilege that no creature had to walk with God in the cool of the day and commune with him. And we can only imagine, we can only speculate what was held out to Adam and Eve Had they not disobeyed? Had they obeyed God's command to eat of all the fruit, all the trees in the garden except one? But the serpent arrived with an alternative. He promised that if they disobeyed, they would become like God. He held out glory to them, That would be a self-sufficient glory where they could be cut off from their creator and still be exalted as gods. And of course, this was a lie. This is impossible for us to fulfill our humanity and our destiny apart from God. And when Adam and Eve fell and they were evicted from the garden, they did not lose the image and the likeness of God, but it was seriously defaced. It was mutilated and marred, spray painted with graffiti, and it became something far below what human beings were meant to be. But do you know what? Even at our lowest and our most debased, human beings are still sacred things. We are sacred things and we find within ourselves A strange hunger for transcendence, a longing for eternal beauty, and a sense that our destiny ought to be something glorious. And the whole winding story of the Bible leads up to the arrival of Jesus Christ, through whom God is bringing us not just back to that original state of perfection in the garden, but onwards to a destiny far higher even than that, to see God face to face and to be completely united with him. And now in Paul's ministry, he has the awesome privilege of standing there at the hinge of the ages to announce to the lost sons and daughters of Eve that God is calling them back home and he's calling them back to their original destiny. And because Paul's ministry is a revelation of Christ, the God-man, through the Spirit, Paul says something extremely audacious in this chapter. He says that his own ministry possesses a glory that far exceeds the glory of the ministry of Moses. Moses is the most exalted human character of the Old Testament. He ascended Mount Sinai. He was hidden in the cleft of the rock. He saw the glory of God passing by and God announcing his own name to him. He spoke with God as a man speaks with his friends. He led the people of Israel out of slavery into the freedom of God's redemption. And yet, Paul says, this is a very small thing with my own ministry and the ministry of all who have the privilege of proclaiming Christ Jesus. I want to emphasize that Paul is not making a bad, good comparison here. He's not saying that Moses and the law and the Old Covenant are bad. He's saying they're good. They're holy and righteous and good. In fact, they're glorious. It's not a good, bad comparison. It is a good and a far, far better comparison Such that Moses' ministry, in comparison, has no glory at all. And Paul reflects on the story of Moses in Exodus chapter 34. The second time he went up to Mount Sinai, after he had smashed the two tablets of the law, when he saw the people worshiping the golden calf, he went up a second time, and God again wrote the ten words of the covenant with his finger on these stone tablets. And when Moses came down from the mountain, Exodus 34 tells us, his face was shining with the reflected glory of God. He was not aware, but the people, gazing on Moses, begged him to cover their face because the glory of God was burning with such brightness, it was unbearable. And so Moses wore a veil as an act of mercy and accommodation to the people's sinfulness. So the glory of God that he was experiencing, they would be shielded from that for their own protection. The glory of God is so holy and so powerful that it is death for sinful people to encounter. And it will burn us up and consume us. Moses had a glorious ministry. Mount Sinai was wreathed in dark clouds. It was flashing with lightning. It was thick with the presence of God. But yet, this glory did not transform the people. Moses could only announce God's requirements, but the people's hearts remained unchanged. And the story of Exodus and the following books of the Old Testament is A sad, grievous tale of people who harden their hearts again and again against God. But now, we've arrived in the new age of the Spirit. Where the flame of God's presence burns in the hearts of all of us who have turned to Christ as our salvation. The Holy Spirit does what the law cannot do. It writes God's requirements on our own hearts. It transforms us from within. So we're empowered to genuinely love God and to joyfully serve him from the heart. And this is why Paul is very bold, why he preaches the gospel so freely and openly. Because he's ministering in the power of the Holy Spirit. No veils are needed. The veil's been torn in two. And God has burst out of the temple to be with his people. And so the ministry of the Spirit is not a ministry of condemnation like the old ministry. It is a ministry of righteousness that makes us right with God, that opens that heavy metal door so we can come into God's presence. More than that, the gospel, the ministry of the Spirit, gives us the full liberty of the sons and daughters of God. To go to God not as an angry, condemning judge, but as our loving Father through Christ. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, Paul tells us. Not freedom from God. That would be death. Freedom for God and to God. Freedom to be who we were designed to be image-bearers of God, persons in communion with our Maker. I want to focus today on the very final verse of chapter 3, this profound text. And we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory Which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit one of the most profound verses in the New Testament this of course is a text about transformation because the gospel is not about downloading some data believing some ideas or concepts that are outside of ourselves the gospel is about the renovation of our entire being, body and soul, poured out as an offering of love to God. And this is what Christ has come, not just to make possible, but to make actual in our lives. Here, Jesus appears, according to Paul in his whole theology and his letters, as the second Adam. Adam. Jesus is the archetypal human being. In other words, Jesus is the standard, the model of what it means to be human. If you want to know, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to achieve my purpose? Look at Jesus. He is the one true human. And so when Jesus stands silent before the Roman governor, and Pontius Pilate says, Behold the man. He is speaking far more profoundly than he realizes, because this truly is the man. Jesus is not only the full revelation of the glory of God, he is the full revelation of the glory of humanity. Jesus shows what it means to be human. And Jesus truly is the perfect image of God in a way that Adam and Eve never were. The radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature according to Hebrews chapter 1. What Adam and Eve had in some kind of partial and lesser and miniature degree Jesus has in full, so that he can say to Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. The perfect imprint of the nature of God. So first, Adam defaces the image of God. And we're all bro- born broken, and misshapen and confused about our true purpose. And then God sends his Son, the Word made flesh, incarnate as a human being, and Jesus, as it were, sits in the studio as the model for a new humanity. And henceforth, every human being in God's new humanity is going to be shaped and fashioned according to to the image of Jesus. As Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians chapter 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So Jesus became a human being not just to die for our sins and bring forgiveness and reconciliation, all of which is gloriously true, and we love to sing about that, Jesus came to transform our very humanity. Not just to return it to what Adam experienced, but to transpose it to a higher key. And Paul's vision is fully, deeply Trinitarian, you notice. That as we behold the Son, the Spirit changes us into the image of God. Spirit changes us into the image of God. He makes us God-like. And the work of the Spirit in the New Testament is so rich, it's easy to get sidetracked on secondary gifts and graces and lose sight of the fact that the primary work of the Holy Spirit... The main thing the Holy Spirit is doing is to transform you and to transform me into the image of Christ. And if we're not experiencing that, we know nothing of the Holy Spirit. We know nothing of the Holy Spirit. In Genesis chapter 2, God forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and then he breathes the breath of life into his nostrils and Adam stands up from the earth as a living human being. With that text in mind, reflect for a moment on John chapter 20 where the resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples and he breathes on them and he says receive the holy spirit jesus is breathing the breath of god into the nostrils of dead people to create a new humanity animated completely by the spirit of god and thus it is written as paul says in 1st corinthians the first adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And of course, this, from first to last, is a gift of grace. When we talk about our spiritual ascent to God and the glorification of our humanity, I want to make it very clear. We're not talking about a project of self-perfection that you can achieve yourself by certain dietary habits and meditation and yogic practices. It's nothing like that at all. It's simply a gift poured out on a startled and surprised and very undeserving people. And as Paul so often does, you'll notice if you look at that verse carefully, he says... And we all are experiencing this. Yeah, this is not just an achievement for Christian elites, for great saints and monks and mystics. Paul was a man who had ascended to the seventh heaven and received visions of which he was not permitted to speak. But this participation in the glory of Jesus is for all of us the dullest, youngest, most ordinary Christian, the person here who loves Jesus but is feebly struggling against sin, it is for all of us as a gift of the sheer grace of God because, frankly, it is completely unachievable by our own efforts. And this transformation happens, Paul says, through beholding the glory of the Lord. We are changed into the image of God through the steady contemplation of the incarnate, crucified, ascended, and reigning Lord. Here's the secret of change, the mystery of transformation, Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of your faith. And I think the reason I fail so often and the reason you fail and fall so often is because that we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we're focused on ourselves and our own transformation and our own failures, and therefore we have cut ourselves off from the power of transformation. What we long for is blessed self-forgetfulness. Total absorption in the person of Jesus, where his glory, his person, and his work fill our entire horizon. And of course, our minds are involved. It's an intellectual contemplation, of course, and it involves thoughtfully meditating on Jesus as we encounter him in the pages of this book the Word of God and we hear him preached but this contemplation is not about an analytical study it is the gaze of love it's the contemplation of worship Do you know that we become over time We all tend to become what we worship. If you love someone, if you adore them, if you admire someone and have massive respect for them, their values, their character, their very mannerisms will become your own. Often quite unself consciously, you become what you worship. In his very provoking book, Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. Jack Deere has a final chapter where he talks about his own pursuit of God, and he says that in his life, the one prayer he's always returned to is this, Father, by your Holy Spirit, help me to love Jesus with the same love with which you love him. Imagine for a moment... The Father's love for His Son. And God's unbounded delights in the glory of the second person of the Trinity. And the Holy Spirit has been given to us so that the communion the Father enjoys with the Son and the communion the Son enjoys with the Father, He came so that we would be pulled into that relationship ourselves and this comes this transformation comes through beholding the glory of Jesus are we growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ are we growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ I think, sadly, for so many Christians, we begin with our hearts very warm with love for Jesus. And then in discipleship, we get distracted by all sorts of fascinating sidetracks and secondary issues. And we can speak very intelligently and passionately at great length about all sorts of aspects of Christianity, but we would have very little to say about the glory of Jesus because we have spent so little time fixing our eyes on him. And what the Holy Spirit wants in your life, most of all, is for you to be obsessed with the face of Jesus. Because beholding is becoming. We behold and we become. And we stand there before Jesus, our faces turn towards him, and then they begin to shine with the reflected beauty of the Son of God. And this transformation already begins when we first turn to Christ. And it is a process that is going on even now at this moment. Notice Paul is speaking in the present tense. a transformation that will only be consummated, that will only be completed when Christ himself returns. As John says, 1 John chapter 3, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. The trumpet will sound, Your body will be raised incorruptible and glorious and you will stand before Jesus. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, his presence itself will radically and fully transform you into the complete image of God. Christ is the perfect, the exact image of God because he is himself true God of true God, true light, of true light. Fully human and fully God, bearing the image perfectly. And Paul says, we will bear the same image. Not a faint copy, not a miniaturized version. We will bear the same image as the Son, who is the exact imprint of the Father's glory. And then, in the resurrection, we ourselves will be shining with the very glory of God. It's an astounding promise. Can you feel yourself ascending in the rickety elevator up towards God? And this process is what the early fathers, very first Christians in the centuries following Jesus, called theosis, deification or divinization. This is where your eyebrows will go up in your head. Read things like St. Athanasius, who's the very definition of orthodoxy, he wrote in his book on the Incarnation, Christ became man that we might become divine. Christ became man that we might become divine. And he uses this language again and again, as do the other early fathers. This is not where I throw off my disguise and announce I've been a Mormon all along. We're not talking about becoming God in that way. We're talking about being partakers of the divine nature as second peter tells us we think of jesus in john chapter 10 quoting these words from psalm 82 i said you are gods son of the most high all of you the fathers were very clear that this divinization, this partaking of the divine nature didn't obliterate the distinction between a creature and the creator. We can never become eternal or infinite. We're not becoming God in some way. We're not being absorbed into the divinity um, like Eastern religions teach. We remain creatures. We remain ourselves. But yet, we are brought into the very life of God Athanasius used this image. He said, "Think about a sword plunged into the fire. And as the sword is held in the fire, it begins to take on the fire's properties: its heat, its color. and yet the sword remains. A sword. We are that sword held into the fire of God's own nature. You will not cease to be a creature. You will not stop being yourself. But yet, your humanity will be held in the very life of God. We have no idea what that means. And I honestly have no idea what I'm talking about right now. But in some mysterious way, far beyond what we can imagine, the divinity of God is going to completely interpenetrate our human natures. This is an astounding vision. To be brought into the very life of God, to participate in full communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to stand there with unveiled faces, beholding, partaking, reflecting the glory of God. All sheer gift what Christ has done for us as the head of the new human race. He's poured out his Holy Spirit on his church so that as we go on in weakness, in shame, in struggle, in frustration, as Paul himself is living in this letter, there is a mysterious life at work in our souls, in this community, transforming us into the very image of God. Through Christ. Let's bow our heads and pray and ask for the continued work of the Spirit in our lives. God, you have called us into such astounding mysteries, and our hearts and our minds can barely fathom the things that you have promised us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would greatly enlarge our conception of the gospel the glory of Jesus, who he is, and what he has won for us. And Lord, help us to live now in light of this future promise. To live with purity of love, with a passion for your glory, with our eyes fixed on Jesus, beginning even now to experience the blessed forgetfulness of the contemplation of your face. Lord, we want to lose ourselves in worship. We want to pour ourselves out in an offering of of love to you. Lord, we hunger for you. We thirst for you. Reveal yourself to us, in us, and through us, we pray. All through the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.